All right, good evening. We're, uh, we're ready to get started here tonight uh, in finding Jesus in these times. We're talking about Daniel, and we don't think of Jesus as being part of Daniel. We don't think about Jesus as being a part of the story. But when, the, when chapter 7 we were reading that he sees the Son of Man coming in the clouds, this is what's quoted in the New Testament when describing the second coming. Paul pulls this very quote into Thessalonians when he describes the second coming. This is the picture that the New Testament is using. And so the New, the New Testament sees that story in Daniel as portraying Jesus. We also know that if they are living in the sanctuary system, their brains are set on the sanctuary system, the way you deal with sin is a substitutionary sacrifice. And that, that ultimately points to the Messiah. And so as we get into that tonight, we're touching on that substitutionary sacrifice. The the sanctuary becomes a central focus in some of those things. Again, we'll touch on those. We'll bring that sanctuary imagery in, especially when we start wrapping up the the book of Revelation. But we'll start tying all of these ends together. And hopefully by the time we finish, you'll have some nice little square knots at the end of each of one of those ropes that are hanging loose right at the moment. Um, Our focus is, again... The person Daniel, the prophet Daniel, and the impact of this story on him tonight. We're going to get into the math next week, Friday night. We'll do all the math, and so we'll get all of those things sorted out. I also want to remind you that we're going to do a review midweek this week. So uh, on Wednesday night at 7 p.m., Facebook Live, we're going to do a review of all of the first half, the things we've been talking about in Daniel so far. So would you join me forward to prayer as we get ourselves started? Father in heaven, we are grateful for your blessings. We pray that you would bless this technological thing that's going on and that you would guide and walk us through the process this evening of discovery that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your uh, Bibles out, this is a good time to find Daniel chapter 8. I was thinking uh, that I should tell you the the page number. Daniel chapter 8 is on page 784 of my very thin-paged Bible. So somewhere in that neighborhood, you should find Daniel in yours as well. I want to start with this idea. This is the threat of a clear picture. The threat of a clear picture. The reality is that we cannot handle the clarity that God knows. We cannot handle the information that God actually has. He says so to his disciples. In John 16, he tells the disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear it. You're the problem. I can't tell you everything. It would blow your mind. You would literally not be able to handle what's coming. So I'm just going to tell you the things you can handle. I will reveal things to you as time progresses, but I won't tell you everything because you just won't be able to handle all of that. And so here in Daniel, we're seeing Daniel getting a clearer picture of what's coming, and it is literally blowing his mind. He's struggling. His peace is being destroyed by the fact that he's gotten more information. So in Daniel 8, we're going to be talking again about our, our picture of in Babylon. Remember, this is the place he lives. He probably lives in and around that palace most of the time when he's in, when he's in the, the uh, presence of Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, the, uh, Belshazzar, I should say. These, these great hanging gardens of Babylon were a place for the king primarily and for people of court. And so this would be the kind of place where he would be. But as Daniel starts to hear more information, his stillness begins to be disrupted. But I want to remind you of what stillness is based on. Stillness is built first on choices. That sounds like a weird place to put it, but it really is first based on a choice. Um, Some folks create anxiety in their own life by 
perseverating, getting stuck in a loop in their minds where they're just going over and over and over some harsh idea or some bad information, and they just keep filling their brains with that sort of stuff. Philippians chapter 4 has an idea for you, has an idea for me, and I have to go back to this to be reminded. Whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are righteous, whatsoever things are of good report, think on these things. Basically what the Bible is saying is think about good things, focus on good things, And you will have less stress, less frustration, less worry in your life. You'll have fewer sleepless nights and there'll be a stillness about you. Um, So first it's based on a choice. That choice was also what was going on with Daniel. He also was making those choices. Remember choices about his own own practice. Choices about what he would and would not do. What he would do for and what he would not do for God. Those things are choices. And we all must remember choices are, are open to all of us. It's also built upon built up on to over time developing a deeper faith in god so if you think about it if you if it's built upon over time you think about the fact that a choice today builds on on my my choices from yesterday and tomorrow builds on 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 yesterday and you just find yourself building up a stronger and stronger relationship with god so make the choice to pray make the choice to read your bible make the choice to hang out with people who support your faith that third one may seem a little unusual, but it really is an important one. Hanging around, spending time with people who support your faith is very important to your faith. And so just, just that to get you started. This is how Daniel has lived his life for over 50 years now. And now in this place, as God starts to open the books to him, he starts to have struggles with it. Now, this, I just remind you of what he's been living through. He lived through, at a probably mid-teen age, the siege and capture of Jerusalem. Cho- he gets chosen to be a captive and is marched a thousand miles off to Babylon. He is made a eunuch. He's forced to be trained as a cultural Babylonian. He's challenged and threatened with death multiple times. And over 50 years of serving, now foreign despots. So we've, we find him after having five decades of service to these foreign despots, Nebuchadnezzar for 43 years, and then his son and grandson after that. And he will eventually even bridge Babylonian history into Persian history and will serve the Medo-Persian kings later. But this is the guy who we're talking about. This is how his faith has been, been tested over the years. I want you to catch a little bit about his reputation. Note that this is Ezekiel. Ezekiel 14, 13, and 14. Ezekiel is a prophet who lives in Babylon. So the book of Ezekiel is actually written during the Babylonian captivity. The prophet lives there. He's taken in the second wave. Daniel's taken in the first wave. Ezekiel's taken in the second wave of captives that are hauled off. If you recall, the, the, the people in Jerusalem continue to rebel against the king and of Babylon, and he keeps going back and having to put them down, and he takes captives in that second and third wave. So this is what Ezekiel is captured in that, that time. And I want you to catch what Ezekiel says in this place. The word of the Lord came again to me saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. And even if these three men, Noah, who's dead a long time ago, Noah and the flood Noah, even if Noah from a long time ago and his faith were there, I wouldn't save it. Noah... Job, also from a long time ago, remember Job has this this amazing statement, even if he slays me, still I will trust him. He has terrible theology about who God is, but he still has faith in him. 
pretty amazing statement. And Daniel is in the middle of the list. Noah, Daniel, and Job. Pretty wild. This is the only living person in the list. And he lives right there where Ezekiel and all the rest of the people who, there, who are there as fellow captives can see him. Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job lived in, an, in a faithless country, they would only save themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord. So I want you to understand his reputation locally is very powerful. Among the captives, he's considered a very faithful man. Among the court of the captors, he is also recognized if, with favorably. So the governors and satraps sought to find a, some charge against Daniel. And this is found in Daniel chapter 6 where Daniel is thrown in the lion's den, the famous story of Daniel in the lion's den. They sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. That's why they attacked him about his religion and about his prayer habits, because they could find nothing else wrong with him. So among the captives and among the captors, Daniel is seen as a man of great faithfulness and great integrity, great righteousness. So his righteousness hasn't changed, his reputation hasn't changed, but his heart is quaking. His nights are sleepless. He's anxious. He's, sor he's sorrowful. He's worried. That's what's going on with this man. This is the breaking of Daniel in this period. As for me, Daniel, at the end of chapter 7, we read just, just this just last night. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me. My countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Countenance is not a word we use a lot. Basically, it's his demeanor, his face, and the rest of him. We think of it primarily having to do with your face, but your demeanor can change with, with your faith with beyond just your face. It's, think of it as body language. The person who's standing up straight, looking at you with a smile on their face, is perceived in a certain way. The person who's slumped down, looking down, eyes down, is perceived by a different kind of countenance. This is countenance, and this is countenance. Daniel says, my countenance changed. It affected me, and it troubled my heart, and it made my countenance changed, change. I looked different to others. So Daniel has been, in chapter 7, learning some things that God has been explaining and has explained before, only some more details are being added. Remember, he's in his 70s, likely. Chapter 2 said he, there, were, there were before empires. The last one would be divided into ten toes, and there would be a kingdom of God restored. Chapter 7, which has just been shown to him, the information that he's just had in his own vision, tells him that there will be four empires. The last one will be divided not in ten toes, but ten horns. There's a new, little, new player, a little horn is on the scene, and God wins and his kingdom is restored. This little horn is the only fact that Daniel doesn't have fully explained in chapter 7, and that's what's worrying him. And he tells us he's worried because of the words the little horn is speaking in chapter 7. It's going to get worse in chapter 8. As we open it up tonight, we're going to find that in chapter 8, Daniel has more questions come up. This little horn that he saw gets worse. He's still trying for answers. He's still asking God for answers. He's still asking the angel he's talking to for answers. And the information, the answers he's getting aren't, isn't making him really happy. Another thing to know about chapter 8, chapter 8 is now being written in Hebrew. It's as if the angel is now speaking to Daniel in his native tongue. It is an interesting passage. It's an interesting change in the book of Daniel. Up to this point, you've seen lots of interesting and weird creatures that he, fo that he follows. Now we're going to see in this chapter two sacrificial animals, a ram and a he-goat. So ram being a, a he-sheep, a male sheep, he-goat being a male, a male goat. Okay? 
Those were acceptable uh, sacrificial animals. Those are clean animals for a sacrifice. Number two, the symbols are sacrificial animals. Number three, specifically focuses on Palestine and the temple. So chapter eight starts to drill in and focus on Palestine and talk about Palestine and the temple. This is what makes him, when we get to the end of chapter eight, you'll see he's gotten worse, not better. We'll catch, we'll get that at the end of the time, end of our time tonight. So here we go. In the beginning, in chapter one, or chapter eight, verse one, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. Now let's notice the third year. The last one was in the first year. So we've been two years. He's been asking God for an answer. Again, you ask for answers to your prayers. We always want the answer that moment. Daniel asks for answers. It takes two years for God to get back to him on this. Verse 2, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, in the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision that I was by the, by the river Uli. So he recognizes the place where he is in vision. He's in another, another part of the community. He's off in a different place. The Uli River is actually, we would consider it a canal, but he's, right, he's describing it as a river. Verse 3, I lifted my eyes, and I saw there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Remember we saw this with the bear. The bear was raised up on one side. As it represented Medo-Persia, it's a really good picture of it because the Persians become the stronger of the two. That the Medes and Persians form this alliance. The Medes are in the north, which I'll show you in a few minutes in a map, and the Persians are in the east, and they both attack Babylon as a, 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 a set of allies, but the Persians become the dominant. And it becomes, in fact, a lot of history doesn't even mention the Medes. It just calls this the Persian Empire. I saw the ram was pushing westward, northward, southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. If it's going west, north, and south, where's it coming from? What's the one thing that's not mentioned? The east. So from the east, it's going west, north, and south. So it's capturing things out in front of it. To its east, it's not, Persia is not needing to go further east. Once it's established itself in control, everything east is already under its control. Everything east will be under its control all the way to the Indus Valley in India, but it's the west that's, that, he, that they're going to have to fight for. They're going to go west, north, and south. South is Egypt. North is going to take it up into the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea region. And west is going to take it all the way to the borders of Greece, which, will, again, will be on the map. And, I was, and as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth. Came from what direction? Came out of the west without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram and had, that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with a furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, broke the two horns, and there was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. So yet this is the picture that's out of the west comes this other creature, a ram. Now, the, remember, you have, you have a goat and a, and, a, and a sheep here. So the ram is being attacked by a goat. So the sheep is being attacked by a goat. Don't put too much in that. It's just the two, what I want you really to catch is there are two sacrificial animals. This one has one prominent horde between its, between its eyes. This already should be, should be conjuring up some imagery. 
because we know that we've been dealing with Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and we know that we are now looking at Medo-Persia and Rome, or and Greece, and those two will be identified specifically in the text. Here's a, an artist's rendition of it, that the, the ram and the goat are fighting, and as they're out there on the plains, they're, uh, the ram, <laughs> this goat looks like he's about to take one big one against this ram. Um, the, the goat, I, know, I want you to note, is like a unicorn. So all those stories you've heard about the unicorn, now you've seen him. It's not a horse. Apparently, it's a goat. It's the only place I've ever seen one described, biblically. So here's the explanations of the prophecies. Notice we're lining up verse 3 and verse 20, because the angel actually tells him what he's looking at. So we have no questions now what we're looking at. And I'll explain why this is significant and would be obvious to Daniel at the time. Verse 3, remember I lifted my eyes and I saw there standing beside the river was a ram with two horns. The two horns were high, but the one that was higher than the other, and it came up last. Then the ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. So I'm not inventing what I told you tonight. It's right there in verse 20. Now Daniel wouldn't be surprised about this because he knows what's around him, okay? And he knows what's, what's on the brink, that Babylon is on the brink with these nations, that these nations are rising up, forming their alliances and coming at them, okay? So he wouldn't be surprised about these. So here's that Medo-Persian empire. So once they take Babylon, which is here, they then take all of Babylon, Babylon's empire, which is primarily right here along the Fertile Crescent from Egypt up through Jerusalem and up to Babylon, okay? And they make it bigger. They take everything that Persia was controlling to the east, Okay, they move to the north. You look up here. This is this is all the stands. Remember all the stands: Kurdistan, Uzbekistan, etc., etc. You've got the stands across here between Russia and the Middle East. You have all of the stands. I, I call them the stands because I can't keep track of all the names. Okay, so they're pushing to the north. They're pushing. They're coming from the east, north here as well. Caspian Sea, Black Sea, all the way west. This is what they would we called Thrace, and this is Greece. So they're right on the borders of Greece. Remember, the Persians and the Greeks fight each other for centuries. As the Persians continue to try to incur on, on the Grecian peninsula to take over Athens, which is a very famous and very rich city, if they can take over Athens, that's a lot of plunder that can come back home. Sparta is also, Sparta's down here. Sparta is also a very significant city, and Thebes is off in this direction. Corinth is right there in that little gap where the first E is. So you can see how, they, how they're moving west, more west than the, the Babylonians were interested in dealing with. And then south to Egypt. Egypt is very important. We talked about this last night because it's kind of a breadbasket place. The Romans will use Egypt basically to feed Rome. They will import grain for Rome from Egypt for centuries once they start controlling it. So the other big thing that's going on is you have the spice trade, and the silk trade coming through here. The silk road is coming from China and passing through here. Spice trade is coming from that Western India business and passing through here. So it's a very important trade route which is being controlled. You also have two trade routes between Egypt and Babylon that run through Israel. So Israel becomes very important to, to control. You have one that runs along the Jordan Valley and one that runs along the ocean. They both come up here catch where uh, Damascus is and work their way up into the hills and then down the valleys back out to the, the Tigr out through the Tigris and Euphrates toward the what is modern in modern day called the Persian Gulf. Everybody got their, their orientation on the map? 
always very, the maps are always important to me. I always wonder if they're as important to you as they are to me. It's all, I, as a history teacher, I used to always use a lot of geography with my history classes. I'm not sure they all love me for it. <coughs> Therefore, the male goat, this one coming from the west, grew very great, but when he became strong, a large horn was broken in its place, and four notable ones came up toward the four winds of the heaven, and out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the, toward the, exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. So we know that the male goat's not going to last forever either. He's going to be coming out of this, or ex extending out of the four winds, but out of one of those four winds comes this next little horn. So the horn becomes the focus again. The little horn was a focus in seven. Now Daniel is seeing it again as a focus. Remember, that's what he's worried about. He's worried about this horn power, okay? The male goat is explained. Verse 21 says, The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. We know who this is. The kingdom of Greece is founded by Alexander the Great. And the description that they just made of it, of what he was doing, racing across the world with this sort of rage, is very aptly, aptly describing what happens. So he starts off here. His father is Philip of Macedon. He unites the Grecian peninsula. The Persians' empire came all the way here. This is the Bosphorus. There's a small canal between Black Sea and what will be the Mediterranean waters, the Aegean Sea, but Mediterranean waters. And so they come across that little peninsula there, and they just charge on out. First here, taking Thrace. You can see one, two, three, down capture Egypt. Four, back up and starting this this uh, in, in altercation that will end with him conquering Persia. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Then he makes a really bad decision and decides to march his armies back across the desert, lose a massive number of soldiers in doing so. Comes back to Babylon and returns home. In three years he conquers the world. Just races across. Chapter 7 had this pictured as a four-headed leopard with four wings on its back. Really good picture of swift conquering. That's what, that's what happens with Alexander. He comes through and he just, just conquers super, super fast. The other thing he's famous for is letting, setting up cities named Alexander after him after, when he leaves a place. So there's a city of Alexander here and a city of Alexander there and a city of Alexander over here. The one that's left is Alexandria in Egypt, which is the most famous of them. It's, it's still today um, one of those clear markers of Alexander's movement. But this is now the Grecian Empire. You can see it's the same thing. It goes all the way out to western India over here. It goes now extending it on beyond the edges into the Greek Empire. They do not go further out. Why would you not try to conquer Italy? We talked a little bit about this, I think, in the after discussion just last, yesterday. Remember, Italy is guarded on the top by the Alps. The Alps protect Italy from the north. The rest of Italy is surrounded by water. So Italy is a very defensible site. It has a really good, strong way of defending itself. Eventually, people will start mounting the Alps. They'll figure out their way through the Alps, and they'll start attacking Rome. But in this time period, we're not really dealing with that. The, the, none of these militaries are really great at naval warfare. Persians coming all the way across here to have a navy, it's a lot of work. It's a big deal to have to try to move across. Even the Greeks are not ready to attack Rome by, this, by sea. So Rome is kind of over there like, a, like an engine that's being built. And they're adding cylinders and they're adding cylinders and they're adding cylinders. And this thing is getting more and more horsepower over time as Greece is trying to control 
all of this, Rome is just getting stronger. And Rome is off in the distance waiting for its moment in history to step out from the West as described by our guide Daniel. So verse 22, the four horns are then explained also. After the, as the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of the nations that it will be no, that is Greece, but not without, not with its same power. So after Greece is divided up into four parts, what happens when Alexander is killed is they first try to establish a, 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 a dynasty in his son's name. His son, however, is only 12. And so they really aren't able to do that. Handlers, his mother, his grandmother, some of the generals, some of the leaders in the community are trying to control Greece and get, hold Greece together. And as they are trying to do this, they keep, they're, they're running into resistance from four major generals, four really strong generals. They, ins- they eventually end up killing off the mother, the grandmother, and the child. They kill off those who are trying to maintain this Grecian organization, this big empire, and they divide it up among these four kings. And that is exactly what the Bible described as it was describing the division of that empire. So now, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy, or Ptolemy. These are the four generals, and this is the re- these are the regions that they took on. Cassander is the strongest. He gets home. He gets the homeland. He gets Greece. Lysimachus is considered second strongest. Okay? Seleucid is considered fourth strongest. And Ptolemy is considered third strongest. Okay? What's interesting, however, is that this guy who's considered sort of the, the number four in line, eventually, between he and Cassander, they attack Lysimachus and divide up his territory. And you end up most of the time in this, this period of history with just three divisions of Rome. This is its initial start. This guy moves up this way. This guy moves over. And they do a kind of a pincer move and end up taking up Lysimachus' territory. And then actually Seleucid pushes Cassander back to the homeland as well. We won't get into too much of that, but there are some other revolts that go on. And Cassander is probably sorry, sorry at the end of time, end of the whole do- deal that he took Greece as his piece of territory. These two fight constantly. The Seleucid king and the Ptolemaic king fight constantly. Look where their border is. So they are constantly passing through here, fighting each other. And it makes Israel into a sort of a, a, a killing field. They're not there to kill the Jews. They're not there to attack, the, attack Israel. But they're fighting each other and they're causing a lot of havoc as they do so. Um, this fact that there's a, 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 a wrap around this, for a while this region becomes independent. Um, under, for about 200 years, it becomes an independent Jewish state within Greece. Okay? So they still consider this Grecian control, but it's Grecian subsets that are in control of Alexander's old nation. So the Bible predicts, again, what is coming in the future with great accuracy. A lot of folks ask, well, is the Bible really true? Is the Bible, can you really prove the Bible? This, just Daniel by itself is such a strong anchor for what the Scripture teaches. It's such a strong anchor for belief in the Bible. The fact that the Bible can predict Alexander the Great will rise and conquer the world in three years, and oh, by the way, he's going to die. Who would have thought this guy's going to die in his 30s? He's going to die, and his instead of this Grecian nation going on under the names of one of these people, it's going to end up being divided up among his four generals. 
this is a really accurate telling of history before it took place. And I'll tell you, this right here is why those who doubt the Bible is inspired by God force themselves to believe that Daniel is writing this story during this time period. Because they can't believe that he could see all this as future. And since they can't believe in that, they have to place him in the present and tell the story from here. And so it, 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 it kind of breaks my heart that these folks have to make up a way for this to work so that they don't have to have faith. Because this is one of the greatest reasons actually to have faith. Here's the Bible telling you what's coming. The prophecy is explained here. The horns that came up out of the four winds. So remember, these four winds are going in different directions. A horn came up toward the four winds. Out of one of them, the four winds, comes a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the, whole, the, the promised land. Now earlier we talked about it coming out of the west. We know in our list from Daniel chapter 2, you have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. We know that Rome is actually to the west. We know that's actually one of the four directions of the four winds. And it says, in that latter time of their kingdoms, when the transgressions have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. A new empire arises. And that new empire is the Roman Empire. This is the strongest, most uh, powerful nation or powerful empire that ever really exists. This is at its greatest extent. This is the Roman Empire at its greatest extent, so at its largest. You can see it's all the way across North Africa, above the Sahara. So this is a, above the Sahara, Saharan Desert out there. It's dry. It's dangerous. There's not much to, to, to want out there, so they don't, they don't really take any interest in it. They go right along the border. It's all the way out to what we would call modern-day Spain and Portugal. It's making its way up through France through Central Europe. Germania is on the other side of the Rhine, and they want those crazy Germans to stay on the other side of the Rhine. Okay, Up here in Britain, they go all the way up to Scotland, and they build another wall across there and say, you crazy Scots can stay on the other side of the line. So Hadrian's Wall is the famous wall here. The Rhine River is the, divine, the, the dividing line primarily for Germany, and Rome is happy with all of this. Now look at what, they car- what they, they're, they're carrying. Here's the land that they will call Media, Parthrum. And all, if you go back, here's our Caspian Sea again. Here's the Black Sea again. This is that place where the, the Black Sea flows into the Aegean. That's the Bosphorus. This is that peninsula right here is where Istanbul is. Today, modern Istanbul actually is on both sides of that. This is the height of power for Rome. This is when Christianity rises. This is the time frame in which Christianity rises. So Christianity shows up on the planet when Rome is covering everything that these major empires have covered. It's very important to note this, okay? Persia had built sort of Pony Express lanes out to the rest of the nation so that they had routes already covered and drawn out. Greeks follow mostly that. The Romans start to build roads. And the Romans build roads that are sometimes 20 feet deep. In in soft soil, they will dig 20 feet down and refill with gravel and rock until they get right to the surface, and then they use pavers that are often this big around. So those top pavers are not going anywhere. There are Roman roads still around. There are modern roads built on top of Roman roads in our world, in Europe. So the Romans begin to build the infrastructure of what we know as modern-day Europe. 
Biomarker one in the Roman story is here in Rome. Literally, you can go there today and you can see mile marker one. You can go to the Roman Forum, walk in among the ruins, walk in on a, a Roman road and see what they were doing. You can come to Jerusalem, you can walk through Jerusalem and you can find yourself walking out of, no, of the modern pavers onto big, giant Roman pavers that have been there since the first century. Rome has made a huge impact. Literally all over this region, what we find of Rome are their infrastructures, the water infrastructure. We find the water infrastructure of Rome where they have built aqueducts all over the region. They have built roads all over the region. They have built theaters all over the region. They have built, um, what do they call the round ones? Circuses all over the region. We find the ruins in the, of the impact of Rome all across this region. There is a Roman theater in Petra out here in the desert. It's, it's wild. The impact that they've had. Roman theaters up in Londonium, up here in Britain. Because everywhere they went, they put this infrastructure in place. The imprint that Rome left on Europe is, is almost unimaginable in its reach. But what you need to understand about it is when the, when the Bible describes this as this very powerful iron legs... Very strong, very powerful empire. That's exactly what it was. The Romans will capture Italy and hold Italy. Then they'll just start spreading and spreading and spreading and spreading like a ooze across Europe. They spread across and they take on the Carthaginians who are here in North Africa and they take over North Africa. They control all the land around the Mediterranean, making it their own home turf making it protectable by them and their, in, their interior nation, interior nations, interior uh, empire, protected because of the narrowness of the entry into that, that little sea, the Mediterranean Sea. So the Romans have tremendous power. They are very thoughtful about their expansion. And they are very rich because of that expansion. Because what they do when they, when they come to a new place, they plunder it in battle, and then they tax it once it's controlled. So they plunder it, then they tax it. Sounds just like the world today, doesn't it? So understand, son of man, this vision refers to the time of the end. This is, yes, the Roman Empire, but it's much bigger than just the Roman Empire. He says, understand, son of man, what I'm showing you is not just the Roman Empire. I'm showing you as empire, 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 divided empire. But it's bigger than that. Understand, Daniel, that this thing refers to the time of the end. He's telling Daniel, what I'm trying to show you is that God wins. It's the story in chapter 7. It's the story in chapter 8. Daniel is focused on the losers but God is focused on the win. God says, look, Daniel, I will take care of this whole mess. I will clean this up. There's going to be an empire, another empire, another empire. Then it's going to be split up, those ten toes in chapter 2, those ten horns in 7 and 8. That split is going to then create a, a, a giant mass of nations, which we all know as Europe. And he says in the time in chapter 7, in the time of those kings, the kings of Europe, the Son of Man will come. Judgment is given. Just judgment is found on behalf of the saints. He keeps telling Daniel, don't worry. I got this. 
And Daniel says, but there's some stuff I'm still not clear on. There's some stuff I'm worried about. Can you please explain? In the latter times of their kingdom, when the transgressions have reached their fullness, a king shall arrive having fierce features who understand sinister schemes. If there was ever a good description of the empire of Rome, a, a, a king who understands sinister schemes is a great description. Because the Romans, there's some pretty sinister things that go on in that empire. The Roman Republic falls into the Roman Empire as the Republic begins to fail and they begin to literally murder off various leaders within the Republic and then establish themselves as an, as an empire run by the Caesars. And if you remember the word Caesar, think of the word czar. The czar was simply declaring himself a Caesar. This was true of everybody who tried to unite reunite Europe, they all sort of took themselves to be little copies of the Caesars. And they were trying to unite Europe again like the Romans had done. Hitler did it, Napoleon did it, Charlemagne did it, the Tsars did it. Everybody was trying to establish that idea. Verse 24. Speaking now about this little horn power, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. I, wanted, oh, I, I skipped something there. I said something that needs explanation. This little horn power now in chapter 8 represents all ten horns from chapter 7. The other ten don't even get mentioned. Because Daniel's not really interested in the other ten. He's interested in the little one. He wants more information about that. And that's what he ends chapter 7 with. Two years later, God tells him he doesn't even mention the ten now. He just mentions this little one. He shall destroy fearfully, shall prosper and thrive, and shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, the Messiah. But he shall be broken without human means. Imperial Rome does all these things. So does papal Rome. As this description is being given, it's similar to what you find when you're reading Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, the disciples ask two questions. They get one answer that answers both questions, and it's hard to sort it out if you don't know that there are two questions answered at the beginning. Matthew 24, when shall the, what shall be the sign of the end of the age and of the destruction of Jerusalem? They think those are one thing. Jesus explains the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the age, but he doesn't separate it for them. Remember Jesus' statement to them? I'm not going to tell you everything because you can't handle everything I know right now. Same thing's true of Daniel. God doesn't give him a very, very deep understanding of this. He gives him a fairly broad sweep of it because he's only really interested in the little horn because of what it does to the people of God. But both Imperial Rome attacks the people of God. In fact, Imperial Rome, the ones who destroyed the temple, remember? Imperial Rome also attacks them as a populace and in 138 spreads them all over the empire. Reality is it spreads them up in Germania. And off in Spain. And if you think about the Roman Empire, you want to get somebody as far away as possible, the Germanic area is a good place to put them because nobody wants to go across the Rhine. There's lots of land there. The Germans are not too, not too uh, heavily populated. They send the Jews into that region. So Germania would include all of Germany, Poland, Czech Republics, all of that's Germania. And then off to Spain. Why Spain? Because it's the end of the world as far as a Roman is concerned. You send them off to Spain, it's like sending them over the edge of the cliff. So they send the Jews off into the two corners of the Roman Empire where they won't be bothered with them. And again, in about 138. 
after the Bar Kokhba revolt. So the Roman Empire definitely does those things. But remember we said, Daniel has no concept of you. He has no concept of Christianity coming in after Judaism. He has no, no concept of the Messiah being rejected by Judaism. He has no concept of you. And so God doesn't try to explain that concept to him. Imagine how that would have blown his mind. Oh, and by the way, the, the Jewish people are going to be, uh, they're going to reject the Messiah when the Messiah comes. And, and, you know, when they do that, there's going to be another sort of a new generation of the people of God, and it won't be the Jewish people anymore. There won't be a nation, in fact. It will be every nation. It will be Gentiles from all over the world. Daniel would have just been spinning, going wild at that time. He may have just simply lost his mind. So he has no way of understanding you. But what happens next? As you recall, Rome divides into these ten, ten little parts. And the one who controls it becomes a religious leader, not a political leader. It's kind of a religio-political leader. But what the control of Europe becomes papal by the time Rome is in decline. So I want you to catch what, how that decline really kicks in. Christianity, this purple, purple mark represents the, sp the spread of Christianity. You notice how these two maps are similar? We'll show you this map a little bit smaller so you can see the fringes of it. But it, if you look at it, almost all the Roman Empire is included in this. Christianity spreads across the Roman Empire. By the 3rd century, Constantine becomes the, the new Roman emperor. He sees what Christianity is doing. Constantine, now, okay, I have a tendency to want to throw Constantine in the fake Christian bucket. So let, let's give Constantine his due. He converts to Christianity. His claim about his conversion is this. I had a dream. I had a vision while I was dreaming. And, the, and this angel came to me and told me that the battle that I'm about to fight here in Rome to become the next emperor, if I will fight under the banner of the cross, his mother's a Christian, so he knows what this is. Okay? His mother is Helen. St. Helena up there in, in the Napa Valley, named after her. His, number, his number, mother is Helena. So he puts these crosses on all of his banners that he's going to march out to war with. He marches across the bridge, confronts the other general who's coming in. He, he is victorious in the battle, claims Rome as his empire, claims to be the emperor, marches his soldiers through the river, declaring them all Christians, having now been baptized, declares himself a Christian, and, more importantly, declares Rome a Christian nation. Okay? You got all that? Big thing happened that day. Constantine, however, knows the vulnerability of Rome now. Because the, the Vandals and others have come across from Carthage and other places and figured out how to get through the Alps. Rome has been sacked several times now. He starts looking for a more defensible place. Now, as a strategic move, this is brilliant. If it's, if it's not a real conversion, it's a brilliant strategic move. Because what he does is he looks at the world around him and he says, wow, Rome is becoming Christian. Let's join the winning team. Okay? Now, God may have put him on the winning team, so pick which one you want to put. But it puts him now at the center of a movement that's overwhelming his nation, his empire. He then says, Rome keeps getting attacked and sacked. Not a good place for me to live. So he picks Constantinople as the place where he will live. He builds a city right here on the Bosphorus. Now again, this is where Istanbul is today. He builds a city right there on the edge of the Bosphorus. This is the city he builds. What's important for you to note? 
there's a wall across this peninsula. You want to get a good, safe place? Rome was a giant peninsula, right? You got water all the way around it. You build a wall across. Then, another defensive barrier here. Another defensive barrier here. He starts building defensive barriers across to protect the city. So he then moves in over here, having built all these barriers. And this city stands for a thousand years. It's sacked a couple of times, once by some friendly, non-friendly Christians who come in. This becomes the center of Eastern Christianity, Eastern Orthodoxy. Some Roman Catholics come in and under the banner of peace. They eventually end up in there one, at one point sacking the city and hauling off a bunch of stuff. The people of Constantinople get control again and, and reinforce it. They are eventually finally taken over by attacks from the east by Muslim kings and leaders. Constantinople though stands on this same place today under the name Istanbul and it's on both sides of the Bosphorus and they've actually built a bridge across the Bosphorus. This, by the way, this water, water here is the Bosphorus, this place that goes through from the Black Sea to the Aegean Sea. So Constantine says, I'm getting out of Dodge. I'm going over here where I can build a more safe place to live and <clears throat> I need to be able to control Rome and the empire. So how can I get some control over all of this? Well, I know that Christianity is spreading like wildfire. Now again, this is if his conversion is not under God. This is if it's just a strategic decision. He makes the Bishop of Rome the leader of the Christian church. There are bishops down here in Alexandria, here in Jerusalem, Antioch, and in Ephesus. He makes the Bishop of Rome the leader of the church, in Latin, it would be Papa, the boss, the leader of the five bishops. He's Bishop 1, and they are 1A, B, C, D, etc. Okay? That allows for him to have influence over the leader of the church and therefore the church. Do you see how smart this is? He sees the handwriting on the wall and sees that Christianity may, the, may be the best way to control his empire. He builds this relationship between church and state, which at the beginning is very small because the other bishops aren't easily giving up their authority. The other bishops are not saying, oh, sure, yeah, you're in charge. The bishops are ex exercising their own authority and staying strong as leaders in their own, own right. But eventually, it takes about 200 years, that strength and power grows. And truly, as, as Rome is divided up by the Huns, basically, into its parts, even they become influenced by Christianity. I'll give you a, a simple description of it. So here is where, off here in the east, is where Eastern Orthodoxy is happening, and Christianity is growing in the east. The Eastern Orthodox Church, sometimes called Byzantian Church, Byzantine Church, goes right up through all these crazy Germans here. Some of our earliest reports about these Germanic tribes are from these Christian missionaries who have gone up to convert them to Christ. If you know anything about Eastern Orthodox Church, they're very successful. They get all the way into Russia. The Eastern, Eastern Orthodox Church influences this entire area. In fact, one of the original people, one of the original miss, missionaries is a guy named Cyril. These people, now mixes of Huns and Germans in this region, have no written alphabet. And so he takes their language and he converts it to writing known as the Cyrillic 
alphabet. And it's still the alphabet used as part of the world today from a Christian missionary. So understand that this is a very smart man. If this is a political move, smart man. If it is led by God, God blesses him tremendously because it gives him a way to reach all of this through the church. It gives the church a great deal of authority, which they begin to exercise and strengthen their ties, claiming eventually that this bishop is not just a bishop, but he's actually the vicar of Christ, the voice of Christ on the planet, the representative of Jesus on the planet. And what he says is the same as what heaven says. And so that becomes this extremely authoritative place. There is military access and the use of militaries by this group to put down rebellion. These bishops and these leaders become um, very, very wealthy, very, very powerful. And I'll give you an example of one way you really get a hold of power. If you're the preacher and you can hold this kind of power, you've got a lot going on. All of these various kings in here are only king because God says you're king. And how do I know God says you're king? Because the bishop of Rome, Papa, has said God says you're king. So if you're messing around and you're doing something that he doesn't like, he could easily say, God says you should no longer be king. It's called the divine right of kings. And as long as the one who understands and reads the divine tea leaves is in office in Rome, he really has a great deal of control on the kings. This will continue for over a thousand years. Primary control over Europe by this particular sort of religio-political arm of the church. Here's the interesting part about this. This ten horns describes very well the way Rome is divided up. The ten horns that we see, the ten toes that we see. The little horn describes very well the way Christianity actually ends up taking over the authority here. Now, I don't want to paint too broadly, with too broad a brush on this. Because what you're looking at really is two things. A very political organization in the leadership of the church. And in the day-to-day workings out in the parishes, some very committed, very strong leaders who love their people. When you, when we'll get, oh boy, we won't have time to get into that in Revelation. Revelation describes this time period, and it describes it not with strong, angry words against. It describes it with a mix. Knowing that the political arm is pretty messed up and pretty corrupt, but knowing that the average parish priest loves his people. The average parish priest is the smartest person in his village. He's often the doctor, the dentist. He's the counselor. He's doing a whole bunch of things. When plagues roll through these villages, it's the priests and the nuns who are going from house to house, helping and caring for the people. They're the people who, if you, if you need that something sewn up, it's usually the priest or a nun who's going to try to stitch you back together. They are the people who are doing the ministry in the villages. So separate the, the political arm of the church at the time, which is pretty corrupt, from the actual parish priest who is trying to do his best for his parish. And I think if you can separate those two, you can see why Revelation doesn't just slam this particular time period when it talks about it, because it's talking about two things. It's talking about this very corrupt political arm and these local priests who are very committed to their people. Okay? 
Catholic church, Catholic means universal. And so they're simply saying, this is the church. This is the name of the church, Christian. Okay? And it will break up into pieces, the Orthodox being one of the first pieces that breaks off, the Arian church that comes into Carthage, the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths are Arian. They end up in battles with the Pope, and it's one of the ways he establishes his authority as getting rid of them. But that stands until the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation finally then kind of breaks the church into a bunch of pieces and brings relative freedom of religious expression. And relative is an important word because from one kingdom to the next, it's a different relative. You could be in a Catholic kingdom, you could be in a Lutheran kingdom, you could be in a Calvinist kingdom, and you had to behave like one of those. If you go to, to, up to Britain, you're in an Anglican kingdom, now you have to behave like one of those. And so there's relative freedom because there are state churches in all of those places. When the United States is formed, one of the primary things they're attempting to do is get away from the idea of state church. It's why the separation of church and state is instilled in the founding of our country because they were getting away from state religion. Government unified with church. When you when you unify government and church, you ruin both. Government kind of breaks itself already. But long, long discussion. But we covered a lot of history. So I'm going to try to get this quick. This little horn specifically attacks the glorious land. We know that, the, that this was true of the Roman Empire. It's also, however, an interesting parallel within the, the leadership of, of, the, of papal Rome because it does also attack the glorious land, and specifically Jewish people. Destroys the mighty and also the holy people. That's clearly what's going on with, with, papal, with, uh, with pagan Rome, emperor, imperial Rome, and it's also true of, pagan Rome, or of papal Rome. Again, the attacks on the Jewish people are very much a part of this holy people description for Daniel because he's not going to understand Christianity. Rises against the prince of princes. The Romans crucify Jesus. The Pope claims to be Jesus. That takes away the daily sacrifice. Rome destroys the temple. And the, the papal, or papal fiat states that the, actual, that the bread of the communion is actually the body and blood of Christ. Makes it to be actually that thing. Um, daily, uh, uh, yeah, the, takes away the sacrifice. And the place of the sanctuary will be cast down for 2,300 years. We're going to come back to that one when we do all the numbers. The place of the sanctuary will be cast down for 2,300 years. Then the sanctuary will be cleansed and restored. Okay? So we'll get to that on Friday next. Um, why is this happening? Daniel reads, because of transgression. He knows that that's why Israel is now in captivity, because of transgression. He's told that the desolation of the sanctuary for 2,000 years is going to happen because of transgression. That an army is going to march on and against the holy people because of transgression. That Palestine is going to fall because of transgression. And he's, he realizes his heart is broken because he realizes we're going to do this again. We're here in exile for 70 years and we won't learn anything from it. He has, again, no idea what's to come. But this looks like a horrible thing to Daniel. I heard the Holy One speaking and another one, Holy One saying to me, certain, the, the certain one that was speaking, how long will the vision concerning the daily sacrifices, the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? 
And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, evenings and mornings, remember a day is evening and then morning. It starts at nighttime. Evenings, morning, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Daniel recognizes this as a year for a day. Ezekiel has been teaching a year for a day there in the captive place. Remember, Ezekiel is the book that's being written parallel to Daniel's life. And then he says to him, seal up the vision of the evenings and morning, which was told to you, seal up the vision, for it refers to the many days in the future. And Daniel ends chapter 8, and he's sick. He ends chapter 7, he's sad, he's heartbroken, and his countenance has changed. He ends chapter 8 by saying, I fainted, I was sick for days, and afterward I rose, went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, and no one understood it. Everything in the vision has been explained. Greece, Medo-Persia, the, the westward kingdom, the kingdom coming out of the west. All of that's been explained to him. All that's left is this little horn authority that he doesn't understand. He's stuck with the same question he had in chapter 7. What is this thing? And how is it going to be destructive toward the people of God? He closes this. If you're reading in your Bible, you should not end 8 where 8 ends. You should read from 8 straight through 9 because you hear the beginning of 9 as a reflection of the end of 8. So if you're looking at it this week before we get to, get to next Friday, look at it as 8 through 9. Just read straight through because the prayer that starts verse, uh, chapter 9 is related directly to what he's just saw in chapter 8, just seen in chapter 8. Where chapter 9 will begin in the beginning of the Persian Empire. We have an empire change, a regime, regime change, as we call it today, in the middle between 8 and 9. Lots of information on that. I hope it, hope it wasn't too hard to take in. But I want you to get the primary point. Daniel's faith, his peace, are being eroded by this bit of information at hand. So if you're sitting on some information that's really bothering you, recognize that it's not new. And that God has an answer. And the answer that God gave to Daniel is the answer he gives to all of us. Yes, your world's a mess. Yes, bad things will happen. But in the end, the saints win. In the end, Jesus comes. In the end, sin is, sin is conquered. And all of this horrible stuff will be done away with. God will have his way. And it will be an eternal kingdom when God returns. Lord, thank you for your promises, especially this one. Help us to remember that you are God. We are not, and neither is anyone else on this planet. That Satan doesn't have a chance against you. And that our sins are carried away as far as the east is from the west by the cross of Jesus. That we don't have to face the judgment bearing our own sins. That the judgment is found on behalf of the followers of God. Father, tonight I just ask that you would hold us firmly when we are most fearful. And that you would point us to the reality that you are God. That we can be still in that knowledge. That you are very close to us. That you are desirous of our blessing. That you are constantly protecting us that you have a plan, and that includes our eternity. In Jesus' name.